0: Chief Justice. The of the court. The law is anything but black and white. I'm not a doctor who can look at an x-ray and see that the bone is broken. Pretty easy to do that, but we don't have x-rays in, in the practice of law. What we have is a lot of subjectivity.
1: This is life of the law. I'm Nancy Mullane. The word law has its roots in Old English. It basically means to regulate and has the same meaning today. When we say law, we share this idea that we're talking about a system that enforces rules. But in reality, there are different sets of rules. There are state rules or laws that differ from state to state. And there's an entirely different set of rules that are federal laws. And on top of that, prosecutors in state and federal courts bring different interpretation to enforcing laws in court cases. This week on Life of the Law, reporter Mary Lee Williams tells the harrowing story of some people who got caught up in two very different systems of laws and of two prosecutors who saw their crime from two very different perspectives with long-term consequences. Our story, 10 hours to 20 years.
2: I think it was a standard holiday weekend, but nothing out of the ordinary prior to this. My name is Todd Draper. I'm a lieutenant with the Medina Police Department.
3: My interview with Todd, we're going to use first names in this story, is in the Medina City Hall. where, in the former council chambers at a wooden table with enough room for Todd's file folder, black police-issued radio, and his Lipton Diet Citrus Green Tea.
2: I normally have a citrus tea and push until lunch.
3: Todd works for the village of Medina Police Department. Medina's in western New York, right between Buffalo and Rochester. About 6,000 people live here. The village is a square. On the inside, quaint family homes with front porches. On the outside edges, flat factories line two-lane roads. The further out you go, the more farmland and apple orchards you run into. So we're here to talk about a crime Todd responded to seven years ago. This crime was unusual for Medina, and the case would grow into something even more controversial. It started with a phone call from Todd's girlfriend around five in the morning on July 5th of 2010.
2: I assumed something was wrong. I remember as soon as I saw a caller ID before I even answered it, I was rapidly accelerating to get over there assuming the worst that something was going on. For her to call me in the middle of the night, that very rarely happened. When I answered the phone, she said somebody's knocking at the door. I looked out the window, I think it might be Homer.
3: Homer Marciniak, a 77-year-old bachelor, was their neighbor. They lived right across the street from Homer on Mead Avenue.
2: So she saw him as he was walking away because nobody answered the door. And he was en route to our neighbor's house to knock on their door when I pulled
3: up. Homer lived alone in a simple, unassuming white house. The intruders cut his phone line and he didn't have a cell phone, which was why Homer ended up knocking on Todd and his girlfriend's door.
2: He had a white t-shirt on and he had underwear on and no shoes. So that was the first thing that I noticed as I pulled up.
3: Todd tried asking Homer some questions, but getting information wasn't easy because Homer had a speech impediment.
2: He would always carry a pad and pen around.
3: I wanted to know more about Homer, so I started looking for photos of him in the local newspaper and online. Then, by chance, I met Judy Ehrenreich and her son. They said they had photos they could show me.
1: But these are all mixed up.
3: Sitting in Judy's living room, she flipped through the tea-colored faded pages of her photo album. Where's my
4: husband not there. I have the one at the gas station.
3: The 78-year-old's husband grew up alongside Homer and was one of his close friends. Judy finds the photo that she's looking for. Homer was maybe in his mid-20s, wearing his uniform from the service station he worked at his face square, glasses horn-rimmed, and smile slightly off-kilter. In all honesty, he looks like he didn't want this photo taken and resigned to someone else's will. Most people in Medina knew Homer because they saw him riding his vintage Harley Davidson, which he kept in pristine condition.
4: He loved
5: his motorcycles.
0: Well, it was his first Harley.
5: He used to sit straight up in that thing and you hear that he he's in the gears.
3: But... For a lot of people, the motorcycle is about as much as they knew. Homer is described as shy, a characteristic some linked to a speech impediment.
4: I used to go down to the bar and have a drink, but Homer never socialized like that.
3: Homer had friends, but the ones I talked to didn't have any deep insights. They basically all said the same thing.
5: Homer was, he was one of the nicest people. I've never seen him mad.
3: A nice, friendly, elderly man in a simple house in a tiny village. It all left the police wondering what happened and why it happened.
5: I think that naiveness that he had is what got him in trouble.
3: So Homer, the man in his underwear, waited in the police car while Todd called an ambulance and his patrol partner. Jose Avila was also on the midnight shift. He got to the scene shortly after Todd.
5: It was July 5th, I remember it. And it was supposed to be the hottest day of the year. And it was, it was like 102 degrees here in Medina. It was really hot.
3: Jose had been the police chief for more than a decade at this point and was hands-on, to put it lightly.
5: I took every crime, every issue, every situation in this town, in this community as personal. I couldn't imagine what poor Homer went through that evening and to know that his priceless comic book collection had been stolen.
3: Let me repeat that. His priceless comic book collection had been stolen. That's why Homer Marciniak's house was broken into.
2: At approximately 400 hours, Marciniak woke up...
3: Todd's reading his police statement from that early morning in July 2010. He dug it out of his case file.
2: ...and got out of bed to use the bathroom. As he approached his second-story bedroom doorway, an unknown person wearing a mask struck him in the face causing him to fall to the ground. The subject tied a t-shirt around his face and instructed him not to move. Marciniak estimated that the subjects were in his home for approximately 15 to 20 minutes.
3: While the cops combed over the house, Homer was at the local hospital. Todd and Jose were up all night, and they couldn't rest. Not yet. It was all about trying to figure out who did this.
5: Yeah, I immediately thought the possibility of outsiders coming in, because this was not common. But I reached out to my informants. Some I had to pay, 20 bucks, you know, whatever. And they would all tell me the same thing. No, I didn't hear about it, but I'll I'll check. I'll call you back. You know, you get phone calls an hour or two later. No, nothing.
3: The police needed Homer to help piece together what exactly happened. When he got back from the hospital around 10 a.m., the officers took Homer upstairs to his bedroom, where he had been assaulted.
2: It was kind of overwhelming. You know, he just went through this traumatic incident, had just been to the hospital, and been treated for injuries, and now was coming back to the scene where this had just occurred, and the whole time having to answer questions about it, almost
3: having to relive it. Maybe it was being hit in the face. Maybe it was his prized possessions being stolen. Whichever. Walking back into his home and up the stairs to his bedroom, Homer was clearly upset, and he wasn't breathing right. The officers brought him back downstairs Gave him a glass of water and set him down on the couch. Around 11 a.m., Homer is sent back to the hospital.
5: It became apparent to us something was physically happening to him that wasn't right. He needed to get back to the hospital. That was his his personal well being, then became more important than me solving the case, which it was way up there. So I realized that, look, Homer is more important than me solving this. I thought that maybe later on I could interview him, but that never materialized. He died.
3: On July 5th, around 2 p.m., of a heart attack. A few hours earlier, Homer had left the hospital. He seemed okay. Now, the officers' only witness to the break-in was gone, and the criminals were who knows where, possibly miles away. Todd and Jose's job was to identify and arrest the culprits, but their opinion of what had actually happened and what the people who broke into Homer's house were guilty of was, as it turns out, not entirely clear.
5: He would have lived. I have no doubt in my mind that he would have been there July 6. That he had not had this this thing done to him, this terrible crime.
3: The police only had one solid lead: a stolen comic book collection.
2: They weren't like DC Marvel comics; they were unique comics, and many of them were military themed. Have them in a sleeve, you know, plastic protective sleeve.
3: Homer had about 400 antique comic books, valued around $50,000, according to the Medina Police Report. Some guns, cash, and jewelry were also taken, but nothing worth as much as the comics. He was a collector of things, not just comics. Homer wasn't a pack rat. He was selective and appreciated his collections.
5: It wasn't the monetary value of those magazines or those books or those comic books that really meant something to Homer. I think that they were just his, something that he had purchased over the years. And to him, it was his, his child, you know.
3: Jose and Todd say they knew what they had to do. Find the comic books, find the criminals. And it wasn't just the Medina cops working the case. They called in other police departments. But It was personal for these two men.
5: And that's the other thing to this whole case, that, you know, you're there with someone for an hour or two and then they're dead because of selfish people. That's, you know, it stays with you.
3: So they followed leads on their own time outside of work.
5: I would look through the papers and try to find some antique antique store or antique dealer or something that I'd grab my wife and son and we would jump in the car and this Sunday, whatever, we would go there. And, of course, I'd be looking for someone selling comic books or anything along the lines of what was stolen out of Homer's house.
3: Todd and other law enforcement went to comic book stores in cities and towns near Medina. What does it feel like as an officer, particularly in a village like Medina, to have a case like this go cold?
2: Um... Honestly, it sucks. Yeah, that three months, as the days and weeks and eventually months started going by, I honestly did not think that we would develop information that would lead us to solving the case.
3: But then, in October, three months after the home invasion, Jose's phone rang in the middle of the night.
5: This phone call was the best phone call I got in a long time. I mean, you could have called me and told me that I won a million dollars. I would have rather had this phone call than that.
3: It was the Rochester police station. There was a woman in custody who mentioned something about the old man who died at Medina. The Rochester police officer knew enough to call Jose.
5: I got in a car. I didn't even have my gun belt, my badge, nothing, my wallet, nothing. And I raced at 100 miles an hour to Rochester. I mean, I was that excited that something, maybe. Uh, I always knew that this is how we were going to solve this
3: This was the break Jose and Todd were waiting for.
5: When I spoke to her at the Rochester Police Department within a minute, I said, this baby is ours.
3: So in a few days, some of the people involved with the home invasion were rounded up and brought into the Medina police station. One had to be tracked down and brought in from Florida. But in this case, being involved didn't necessarily mean breaking into Homer's house. It didn't even mean being in Medina during the break-in. Rico Vendetti, a middle-aged, bespectacled Rochester entrepreneur, wasn't in Medina the morning of the break-in.
5: I call him the puppet master.
3: According to court documents, Rico paid people to steal the comic book collection, effectively bankrolling the operation. But here's the thing. The officers never figured out how Rico learned about the comics, but they thought it started with an appraisal or sale.
5: Homer went to Rochester with a list of comic books, and from there, someone learned about Homer having those antique comic books.
3: Turns out, the break-in at Homer's place wasn't Rico's only illicit operation. He also ran a shoplifting ring. It works like this. He paid people to steal things, like thumb drives or breast milk pumps, from stores and turned around and sold those items online.
4: We realized that it was more than a single arbitrary home invasion that it was more of an organized crime ring.
3: Joe Cardone is the district attorney for Orleans County, which includes the village of Medina.
4: If the facts warrant somebody being convicted, then I'm going to be balls out trying to do that.
3: He's been the DA in Orleans County for more than 20 years. He's prosecuted a lot of cases.
4: I'll go to the state conferences of other district attorneys and they'll say, Joe, what? What do you have in the water up in Orleans County? Because you guys have some pretty strange situations.
3: And Joe took the same approach to this case as he does to all of them. Research and prosecute. That's what Joe does.
4: Clearly, what had happened to him in his home was what ultimately uh, resulted in him having a heart attack and dying. I mean, that would be a logical position for anybody to take. The indictment is dated November 15th of two thousand and 10 against Arlene Combs, Donald Griffin, Juan Javier, Albert Parsons, uh, Tricia Salbier, Terry Stewart, Rico Vendetti, and Timothy Williams. um,
3: So uh, these eight men and women were charged with burglary, assault, and grand larceny, not murder. Joe didn't think he could prove they murdered Homer beyond a reasonable doubt.
4: Uh, You know, I I had learned that earlier in the week, uh, uh, you know, he was having apparently chest pains or some type of complication. And that was well before, you know, uh, the home invasion occurred. So was, you know, his heart attack something that was coming on? Um, You know, was was, was he having some health problems that this may have happened anyway?
3: So as Joe began to build his case against the eight people, here's what he knew. First, Homer had a history of heart problems. According to court documents, less than two weeks before the break-in, Homer visited his doctor complaining of shortness of breath. Second, after getting stitches at the hospital after the break-in, Homer was allowed to return home. His heart checked out. And it wasn't until later that afternoon at 2 p.m. that he died. Third, the coroner performed an autopsy the day after Homer's passing and ruled the cause of death undetermined. And finally, a review of the case read, quote, the appropriate manner of death is natural, end quote. But, and there's always a but, the final review also read, quote, although there was a likely contributory role, that the causality could not be stated within a reasonable degree of medical certainty, end quote. Meaning the burglary and assault maybe played some role in the heart attack, but it couldn't be definitively proven. So Joe Cardone, the district attorney, said he couldn't prove murder.
4: That was a hard decision because I think anybody uh, looking at it, and it didn't require much legal training to have that opinion, uh, would think that, wow, this man's home was broken into and he was assaulted early in the morning of July 5th, and he was dead. Why wouldn't that constitute a murder?
3: But how the local DA saw the case and what he could charge the defendants with wasn't the end of the case. Remember how Rico ran a shoplifting ring? Well, he wasn't just selling to people in New York State. He shipped goods all over the country. And that's important because across state lines means across jurisdictions. Joe Cardone, the local DA, could only prosecute crimes in New York State. So, he contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office. It moved up to federal court and was considered a possible racketeering case. If you don't know what racketeering is, watch a mob movie. It's basically organized crime. Rico's shoplifting ring fell under that definition.
0: always felt that it never should have gone federal. It was not a federal case. I thought it was stupid to do that, but that that was my opinion.
3: Herbert Greenman is a criminal defense attorney in Buffalo, New York. He represented one of the defendants in the case. Donald Griffin.
0: His case was the wrong place at the wrong time.
3: The shoplifting ring was why this case went federal. But racketeering or organized crime wasn't the only charge. Donald Griffin, along with Rico Vendetti, Arlene Combs, and Albert Parsons, were charged in federal court with second-degree murder. Second-degree murder in this case translates to, these four people committed the crime that caused Homer Merceniac's death. This was what prosecutors call a violent crime in aid of racketeering. Now, there is a federal murder statute, but it wasn't used here. Federal prosecutors charged them with violating New York state penal law. Under violent crime in aid of racketeering, federal prosecutors can basically adopt the state law from where the violent crime occurred. Yeah, you can do that. Even though Joe Cardone, the local district attorney you heard from earlier, didn't think he could charge them with murder and get a murder conviction under New York state law. That didn't stop federal prosecutors. So Donald, Rico, Arlene and Albert were charged with second degree murder. They faced federal consequences for a state crime. And those consequences were serious. Under federal law, if convicted of second-degree murder, the mandatory sentence is life in prison without the possibility of parole. Life meant life.
0: If a jury could find that his act was a link to the causation of the person's death, that 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 would be sufficient for a jury to find somebody guilty of a homicide. So you can see the, the standard was pretty low in a case like this because it would be easy for a jury to say well what he did you know ultimately was a link
3: Donald admitted to hitting Homer during the break in and along with murder he was charged with assault Now, the facts of Homer Marciniak's death didn't change. Just the court system and the prosecutors pursuing the case. Herb, the lawyer you just heard from, struggled with key questions. Did the break-in and assault cause Homer Marciniak's death? And was it provable beyond a reasonable doubt?
0: If Mr. Marciniak had been a healthy man... He certainly never would have died from what happened, from being sort of slapped in the face. The law is anything but black and white. I'm not a doctor who can look at an x-ray and see that the bone is broken. Pretty easy to do that, but we don't have x-rays in in the practice of law. What we have is a lot of subjectivity. There is no right and wrong. What works is what's right, and what doesn't work is wrong.
3: The U.S. Attorney's Office lined up a medical expert willing to testify that the break-in and assault could have caused Homer's heart attack. Herb, Donald's defense attorney, was concerned.
0: We were very worried that out of this case that that there was a potential that a jury would have found him guilty and he was looking at a life sentence. You know, aside from the death penalty, that's the most serious sentence you can get. There's nothing more serious. And to think that a young man his age could be spending the rest of his life in jail, which is pretty horrific when you really think about it,
3: So imagine trying to argue this case. Donald admits he hit Homer Marciniak, an elderly man with a bad heart. Homer died ten hours later.
0: So it's not exactly, uh, you know, a case where the jury's going to be enamored with the people who did it. What I was going to have to do was to humanize my client by giving a lot of background information as much as I could get in, and to let them know that this was an unfortunate set of circumstances but not a case where he should be punished to the extent that a murder conviction would carry.
3: If the case went to a jury trial and he was found guilty, the risk was he would be sentenced to life in prison. So, Herb advised Donald to take a plea deal. In fact, all seven defendants took pleas. The case of whether they committed second-degree murder never went to trial. Donald, Rico, Arlene, and Parsons each got 20 years in federal prison, admitting guilt to various offenses. Rico and Arlene Combs, the sole female federally charged with second-degree murder, admitted guilt to racketeering. Albert Parsons got 20 years for violent crime in aid of racketeering assault. But Donald was the only one with second-degree murder attached to his sentence.
0: When it became definitive that he was going to take the plea and that he was likely looking at a sentence of twenty years in jail, I think the shock of of it just hit him all of a sudden and he broke down when we first started talking about it, that it looked like that's what we were going to do and for the first time he cried pretty hard and showed his emotions. He had not shown a lot of emotions up until that point but then he realized a good part of his life was going to be be spent in jail. and I think he came to that realization, and I think it hurt a lot more than he thought it was going to hurt.
3: So this whole thing started with a break-in to steal a comic book collection, and it ended with a charge of second-degree murder, a charge that was never brought to trial and never proven.
0: Do I believe in my heart of hearts that I have a young man serving 20 years in jail who really doesn't deserve to be in jail for twenty years? Pretty much, I do believe that. but um, he was, you know he was in the federal system, and the federal system is a very difficult, sometimes harsh system of justice, but it is what it is.
3: Yes, people broke the law. But how much did they break the law and which laws did they break? In this case, it depends who you talk to. The folks in Medina who knew Homer and some who didn't, believe
4: he was murdered. He died from people robbing his house.
5: And then after they robbed me, he had that heart attack. That broke my heart, because Homer would still be alive today if that didn't happen. I know he would.
4: You know, I understand that he had a heart attack, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, they still killed him. Every other day, he'd be up here walking around. So, I mean, he he was healthy, and I'm sure if it hadn't been for the beating he took, he'd be alive today.
3: There wasn't a trial by jury and unanimous verdict to decide whether or not this was murder. The plea deals potentially rescued the men and woman involved in this crime from a murder charge, possible conviction, and life in prison. Taking the plea deal meant for their role in breaking into Homer's house and stealing his comic book collection, they would have to give us 20 years of their life in prison. For Life of the Law, I'm Mary Lee Williams.
1: 10 Hours to 20 Years was reported and produced by Mary Lee Williams. Tony Gannon, Sr., produced this episode. Our post production editors are Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Rachel Kane. Our engineer was Seal Muller at KQED Radio in San Francisco. Music in this episode was composed by David Seche, Jazar, The Losers, Blue Dot Sessions, Poddington Bear, and April. Special thanks to UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism, Ben Manila, and editors Anna Sussman, Cara Platani, and Julie Kane. We had background research from the University of Detroit Mercy Law School Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and associate professor of law, Richard Broughton. Editorial assistance from Lacey Jane Roberts, Teresa Kotsilaros, and Jennifer Glenfield. Special thanks to Harlan Haskins, Megan Dunbar, and Armin Sammy. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune in to Life of the Law on iTunes. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send everyone who subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters and news about upcoming investigative reports. This week, Mary Lee Williams shares her experience as a graduate student at UC Berkeley Graduate School, and she's put together a list of some graduate schools offering journalism programs for you to consider. You can subscribe to our newsletter at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply network of podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation. Next on Life of the Law, join us in studio when we talked to one person serving 20 years in federal prison for her part in the crime.
4: Well, they said somebody ended up being home, and I didn't know anything about him being hit until after the fact. But apparently, one of the guys was walking up the stairs, and they got startled.
1: That's next on Life of the Law. Visit our website and make a donation to support investigative journalism. Your support is important. I'm Nancy Mullane.